when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. How you doing, Internet? It is Monday, May 14th, and you're listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 156. Pretty sure it's 156. I just checked on that. I am your host, not Austin Walker, but Danielle Riendo. Normally, obviously, Austin does the Monday show, but he is off in a faraway land, a la-la land, if you will. He's in L.A. doing doing video game stuff, doing work stuff. And so today, you get me, and you also get Patrick Klepek. Hello. Oh, it's, it sounds very hale and hearty today. That was a hale and hearty hello. I like that. I'm I'm trying. You know, I had uh, a uh, uh, unfortunate family weekend I had to be a part of, and now oh, my kid yeah. is sick. So I am. I'm just trying to bring it. I'm just trying to. Bring, I'm just trying to balance out everything else in my life by uh, <laughs> doing as Austin does, and just and just finding that energy. Just powering through. Well, I, I appreciate that. I've got my oh. number one dad coffee cup, and I'm, I'm oh. ready to go. Good. That's a good image. That's a very good image to start off the week. Rob, how about you? What kind of coffee cup do you have right now? Uh, I have a pint glass full of water, sadly. <laughs> Wait, so is, this, so is this where, like, okay, hold on, I have a question. So did we yeah. revisit the question of uh, 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 the liquids on Friday's podcast? Have we advanced oh. the debate there? I don't know that we did. I think no? a lot of other people advanced the debate. I am still really caught up on coffee or water because I love both of them. Okay, I was wondering if we came to a to a, a subtle. I mean, color. like, okay, yes. If I had to actually actually really choose, it would probably be water. I wouldn't be happy about it. Would not be happy about it. But you do kind of need water to live, so I guess I'm I'm going water. I guess I'm going water. So, That's it. So there were. Um... I mean, like, I think anytime we podcast, we generally raise the level of discourse. True. Uh, Sorry, I didn't, but, I didn't mean to suggest otherwise. Uh, I was just, you yeah. know, especially in this venue, I feel like we were illuminating, you know, putting a spotlight on something that people just don't talk about enough. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we did. I think people saw our efforts and, and recognized them for the important contribution to uh, the public discussion that it was. <laughs> However, it did I did get the feeling uh, from some feedback uh-huh. that perhaps in some key ways we did not fully know what we were talking about, oh, uh, which is an unusual thing for this <laughs> podcast. Um, and we never hear that from, from listeners, but uh, this time we did. And in fact, we may have sort of ended up crossing our wires a little bit with our terminology, mm. drawing a line between clear and colored fluids right uh because like for instance if your doctor tells you to drink clear fluids yeah that doesn't necessarily mean that the fluid can't have any color at all it just needs to be like transparent or translucent to light it's the amount of light that goes through something i tried to raise this and austin wasn't having it but i, I tried to raise that for the record tried to raise that austin up. 
I agree. Like Austin had a very doctrinaire interpretation, <laughs> an idiosyncratic doctrinaire uh, interpretation of the grounds of, of debate. Uh, but yeah, we, we perhaps should have been more accurately considering suspensions versus uh, like transparent fluids, like trans- suspensions versus uh, solutions. Yes. Because also um, like when it comes to coffee, if you were to say, get the, if you make your own coffee and you get the balance wrong on the coffee to water ratio, you can get coffee you can see through, and it's not particularly good coffee or effective coffee, but there's coffee in there, yeah. even though you can see through that liquid. Yes. That's true. My wife Lightning does, my wife does this No constantly. one would live like that. No. No. <laughs> I do live that way because my wife constantly gets the mixture wrong, and then I have to throw it out and start over. <laughs> I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, okay, I have a question. Uh-huh. How does that go over? Well, you sip the coffee, and it, it doesn't taste like coffee, and I, then I dump it out, and, you know, we do a little more impact to the environment, but I get my coffee. I mean, we all okay. got to make our sacrifices, so, right? So <laughs> your wife prepares coffee. Right. She goes to the trouble of, like, making a thing yeah. for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> you take a sip. Yeah. And then you... Ha- then you actually well, let show second, on your face your distaste. I have, I have, I have put liquid garbage into my system. Uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've started my day off on a poor note, and I make sure to pass on the feedback for the future. Mm, and it keeps happening, you say? Well, like uh, consistently enough that it's an issue. Like it's a, you know, it's a, mm. it's a feature, not a bug. Oh boy! Right. So, um. Hmm. Oh boy. I'm a little concerned. A couple things. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, um, please. It. I mean, it just. It just feels like this is. Uh, if it's still happening, is it possible that your performative displeasure at the uh-huh. coffee is actually starting to induce you being served shitty coffee? Well, she's drinking uh, it too. So that's. I hmm. mean. Okay, but is she drinking it and being like, "Whatever, this is fine." Well, I think she has become indoctrinated to the to the sense that this coffee is acceptable, and what I'm trying to do is. Did she grow up in around the clock or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to investigate that further. She's weaned on that kind of coffee. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I think you're probably being poisoned. Um, well, that would, explain, or, that would explain a lot. Or headed for divorce. I mean, to be honest, that would also explain a lot. <laughs> wow. I mean, look, you're t- you're talking to a guy who like just took over all coffee duties because like <laughs> look, oh, no. it's 75 grams per, per french press. This isn't hard to this isn't hard to to parse isn't your and partner like a I have physicist? marked Pardon? Isn't your partner a physicist? Yeah, and that's why we have a kitchen scale. That's why we went to weight measurements for everything. Like she is a scientist and so like you know, a long time ago, she taught me that, like, hey, dumbass, stop using volume measurements for <laughs> things that aren't like liquids, uh, because that's actually highly inaccurate. Use weight measurements. So we have a kitchen scale, uh, but it turns out that I'm very persnickety about this may oh, shock you. Oh. Uh, I am. <laughs> I am persnickety Uh about little things like coffee. Uh, It needs to have the exact right grind in the in the burr grinder settings, and it needs to be uh, seventy five grams per French press, and um, it needs to be exactly two hundred and five degrees. Oh my god! Uh, Oh my god! I buy big buckets of uh, coffee from Costco and grind it in a weird thing that I don't think does a particularly good job. 
You would be so yeah, Patrick just like chowing down and chock full of nuts. Oh, Rob yeah. would be so upset. Like I should just take a video for Rob of like my Please process do. and just just the thing watch is, him. Oh. I think if I sorted you out, you and your wife would both agree that my way is best. I I, do, I and... don't know that I yeah I think you're right that I I it, I, I live. We we live in a in a world of ignorance, and I I've just chosen to stay behind that veil because it's easier that way. <laughs> but at the same time, like when I like look, but the thing I don't do is on those mornings when I don't like get up first and I don't get around making the coffee. I am not nearly self destructive enough <laughs> to take a sip of the coffee my partner repaired <laughs> and be like, "What's this? <laughs> this is garbage." Here, honey, let me walk this over to the trash where it belongs, <laughs> and I put your trash coffee down the drain. How did you hack into our nest and re- pick up that direct audio dialogue lift of our of our mornings, Rob? I just buy like gallons of cold brew. It's delicious. Grady's cold brew, Califia Farms. Oh, that's how you know, I, I live. I've tried my so life. many times to get with cold brew. I just mm, it's it, it never and quite it's has the, the body I want. Yeah. So is cold brew just regular? It's not. That's not like iced coffee. That's different. No. What's the difference? It's stronger. Oh, so it's just like yeah. it's also it's brewed just, differently. Oh, okay. Huh. It's brewed like iced tea, or yeah. yeah. So it's it, sorry. It is. Oh wow! Okay, do you have to yeah. take a wow. deep, so you're gonna, you have to take a deep breath before you start this one, Rob? Wow. Well, there's there's a couple ways you can make make iced tea. I suppose the preparation is more akin to something like sun tea. Uh, but the point is, you take your coffee, you, you take your coffee grounds, you put them in some sort of like flask or vessel, mm-hmm. uh, and you steep it basically cold uh, in a fridge, like. Overnight, possibly for like 36 hours. I've tried it a couple times. I've tried, uh, tried it a couple different ways. The idea is that you don't get any, like you get like none of the acid yeah, uh, that comes from like doing a hot brew. Mm. So you get a very mild, creamy coffee, ideally. But I find that it also is very, it's a very thin taste. And so it ends up tasting like kind of what you're describing, Patrick, where it's like there's no good, rich body right. on this on this coffee. It's 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 watery. Uh, and so I never get with it. Grady's. Try some Grady's. I'm I'm serious. It's really delicious. I just, I'm so habitualized to warm coffee that even when it's hot out, I don't even necessarily want to get iced coffee because I just like, no. I associate coffee with just warm, like scald- scalding hot coffee. So even like in the summer, I will still, occasionally I'll get an iced coffee, but I, I, I usually am upset about it halfway through because I'd rather have just gotten the normal coffee that I I'm used to. I prefer iced coffee, actually. I prefer you, it Oh, well, way. then here's a question. Yeah. Are you one of those weirdos that also likes cold pizza? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> actually, on. actually, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, I need to temper that with I'm from uh-huh. Rhode Island and we have a delicious treat called bakery pizza. It was not normal pizza. It's not like pizza with cheese. It is room temperature. It's called cold baking. You just roll out the dough. You put all your <laughs> toppings on it. And you leave it no. in the fridge overnight for like 36 no. hours. And you just eat it. No, no, no. I, look, I want to share with the world what bakery pizza is because very few places actually have it. But it's like room temperature, really delicious, like pizza-y thick bread with like really, truly delicious like tomatoes and sauce on top. And you eat that room temperature. That is not cold pizza. That's not like overnighted pizza that you, you know, is normally served warm. It is a delicious treat. But normal pizza, no, hell no. 
Yeah, no, I'm t- like, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about like you, you know, you had pizza from the night before, you put it in the fridge in a plastic bag, and then yeah. you're like, I'm gonna have some of that pizza tomorrow, and you take no, it out. I reap it. You just don't. That. Yeah, no, yeah, my, no. And my wife, no way. You. She's like, no, nah, I'll just, I'll just eat that stuff. No. Yeah, she's a monster. It's delicious. Oh, so no. you're one of those too. Oh, I can't get, I can't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I can't, mm. no, I mean, look, I, I love both. Yeah. Like, I am very, like, I'll get very serious about, like hot pizza as well. I, like you know, I'll, well, I, you want to talk about crust recipes? Let's let's fucking go <laughs> oh, there. Yeah. Uh, but no, for uh, by the way, Alice Waters uh, cookbook has a really good uh, thin <laughs> crust pizza uh, dough recipe. It's you should you should check it out. It's, uh-huh. It bakes up really crispy. Well, I, anyway, side, side note to that is that if you've not made your own pizza before, it is uh, both deeply satisfying and easier than you think as long as you just go buy pre-made dough from like a whatever, you know, a Whole Foods or... What was I just saying, Patrick? (laughs) What? What was I just saying? What? I give people the the, the I tell I tell you exactly where to go for a good dough recipe. <laughs> That's where you go. Alice Waters cookbook. But then you, have you to, just do her pizza dough. No one's going to do that. You're going to do that, Rob. What I'm saying is that the the biggest impediment to making homemade pizza is the dough part because it's the most time consuming part of it. Whereas if you just go buy some pre-made good dough, then you put your own ingredients on it. It is a thousand times better than like whatever pizza you will traditionally order. And it's like a really fun way to make some just food. Just make I'm, your own sauce. Is the I've thing wanted I will to say. make, I've done the dough thing as well. And it is better. It is a better version of making your own pizza. I'm just saying if that, if you look at that and go, I don't have the time for that, then I just buy some pre-made dough, but also do the rest of it yourself. And it's still delicious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I think just, you've lost Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Mm, I'm just not sure that I now I'm not sure your opinion of cold pizza really counts, <laughs> is the thing because wow, you're like okay. uh-huh. yeah you know as we all know the mark of a good pizza is everything but the dough the, the dough is expendable crust what was crust had to do with the pizza like go to the gutter and just like <laughs> well, you said you go can. to the supermarket and buy pre-made dough that basically is the gutter oh wow. like, okay all right wow. well like that's that's like play-doh you roll it out you you put ingredients uh-huh. out. no no i mean the technically birds. the ninja turtles <laughs> ate gutter pizza right because they lived in a sewer no but it was so. new york but it was new york delivery yeah it was but like they were eating it in a sewer so doesn't that make it gutter pizza well the ingredients were fine that's true yeah, it never touched. Unless well, I mean, you think, I guess it sort you of think did Donatello the... made his own dough, in which case it's literally gutter pizza. No, they made it like ordering pizza was a plot point in Turtles. Yeah. Um. So, like, believe me, like Donatello at some point, you know, he got into like molecular gastronomy oh, bullshit, right? Where he's like, look at this pizza infusion I made of, you know, Michelangelo's nunchucks or something. I have no idea. <laughs> Rob. But, you know, he got into that kind of bullshit. Rob, I think. Uh, but yeah. I think you're our Donatello. I hope not. <laughs> isn't, that what Donate- think- isn't that what Donatello would say, though? Yeah. Uh, oh no uh, oh no i think it yeah. is well i've made i made some bad life choices <laughs> point is cold pizza it's perfectly fine it's delicious i'm not in in this instance i'm not judging i just don't like cold pizza i'm just That's i mean true. i i understand i respect your decision to eat the cold pizza people i'm not world. sure you've had enough hangovers my friend oh rob that's <laughs> rob, that's that's not that is factually inaccurate <laughs> <laughs> He as someone as someone with a weak stomach, uh, I have <laughs> uh, that has been a lifelong problem. Um, anyway, we should probably 
15 minutes in, maybe. You want to talk about video games? Yeah. Yes. Rob, you've been, pl- you've been playing a video game, right? You've been... <laughs> you might as well... Yeah, Rob, so, hey, Rob, so, do you want to just continue on your bullshit for another 10 minutes? Oh, shit. Yeah, uh, see, I no, was gonna, I a- was even gonna, like, make a whole thing. I had a whole segue plan there with Raphael and Rage, but, like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you take that one, Patrick and Rob. You, you go for it. Is that, what are you guys, some Encyclopedia Britannica? I see, what is that, is that what you're playing? <laughs> Well, you know, it actually is of a piece with what we've been talking about, <laughs> because it is kind of like a not-as-good-as-the-real-thing mm. uh, type of game. <laughs> oh, like cold I'm pizza. Playing... Oh. Oh. <laughs> no, so I've been playing, like, this is definitely the store-bought crust version of Total War. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Uh, Total War Sagas Thrones of Britannia, uh, which I've been playing for the last week, and um, I finally started to sort of really put my thoughts in order about it. Can we, hold on, can we not... back up for a second? What is this? Is the sagas like a subgenre of the oh, Total? Oh, that's a great question. Because Total War, has, at that at this point, is kind of, I've lost the plot on like what that even means because they've kind of gone in so many directions. So is sagas like a fantasy version? What, what does sagas mean? Okay, so you, the fantasy version is uh, Total War Warhammer, right, which is just right, the right. inevitable... Uh, merging of the Total War and Warhammer brands uh, <laughs> that that was going to happen at some point, uh, and it finally did, and it's cool. Uh, and it maybe it's kind of subsumed the uh, the the entire series to an extent. Right now, the main game they're working on is Total War Three Kingdoms, uh, which is taking the action to, uh, well, Three Kingdoms era China uh, during the conflict between uh, you know. Guy, I'm I'm so terrible at remembering the dynasty names. It was a like similar um, setting to like Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Oh yeah, for stuff sure. Like that. Okay, all right. For so sure. There's a touchdown. Right. So that's the main thing they're working on. That's kind of going to be their next major release. But the thing about the Total War series is they've always had some really good expansions and uh, standalone expansions. So like Empire Total War had a spinoff, which was Napoleon Total War, which just focused on Napoleon's campaigns. Uh, even better, it was like Rome 2, I don't think it was very good, but it gave us a really great uh, standalone expansion, Total War Attila, which was super great about like the final collapse of the Roman Empire. Uh, maybe my favorite one was for Shogun 2, it was uh, Fall of the Samurai, uh, which was kind of like a mix of great Shogun gameplay and then some really good like gunpowder era Total War stuff. So they already had this tradition of really strong standalone expansions. They just kind of like made that official. And now those are all going to be Total War sagas. Ah. And so this is kind of them rolling out that that new branding. And I'm curious if it survives this game. (laughs) (laughs) Because they kind of poisoned the well right at the start. What's the setup? Uh, so it is, uh, it is the British Isles during sort of the Viking invasions, uh, before, uh, William, before the Norman invasion, before they the Norman also, conquest. They did Total War, was that, didn't they do a Viking game? Total, was it like that the action spinoff that they did? Am I crazy? Oh shit. They, no, was that a Total War Sparta? Hmm. They did do an action game ages ago. I'd forgotten wasn't about it that. Total it wasn't very War good. Viking? No, maybe okay, maybe not. Total War Viking Adventures? No. Anyway, I thought I thought maybe that was okay. Anyway, get to No, this has nothing to do with it. Okay. They did do a Viking invasion expansion for Medieval One, uh, which was really good. Um this one is not very good. <laughs> and I think a big part of that is They've taken this era and 
really made it as boring as possible from a strategic point of view. Like, so a total war game, it's kind of like two, it's sort of two each. There's two halves of the game. There's the strategic level and then the tactical battles and the tactical battles are really flashy and they're gorgeous. And that's what gets all the attention. But what makes them really work is that they're given context and meaning by the strategic level where you're building up your armies, you're engaging in diplomacy, you're investing in upgrades and what kind of army you can bring out into the fields determined by that. So it's a little bit like the strategic layer is like GM mode uh, for your empire. And then the, uh, the battles of the games, in this one, they've basically taken all the meaningful decisions out of the strategic level at all. Like, literally, it's, do you have money for this upgrade? Then you should just do that. Just build that upgrade. Done. That's that's it. And there's no decisions along that point. It's just build from castle one to castle two. Hmm. Um, farm one to farm two. Farm two to farm three. There's... There's no interesting trees that you go along with this stuff. Uh, literally, it's just kind of this linear progression. Uh, research is carried out the same way. And so the strategic layer, you know, it's it's a gorgeous map. It's a really, like, detailed map of old England, uh, of, of uh, you know, the, the British Isles during this period. But there's just nothing to do there. And so the battles are fine. <laughs> but it just feels like half the Total War formula has been uh, b- like blown away here. And so now it's kind of like a really, really thin strategy layer uh, that doesn't really compare at all to previous Total War games. And then sort of the same battle mechanics. But if you break that formula, if, 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 if the two halves aren't strong the battles don't really have much meaning because you're just not that invested. Um, and so it's it's a really frustrating game because, like, it looks great. It runs great. I've had some great battles in it. Uh, these are kind of fun little armies. Um, you know, if, if you if you like the idea of Viking shield walls clashing with, uh, you know, Saxon axemen and, uh, you know, Welsh archers, there is that stuff. And it's, it is pretty cool. It's cool as hell. But... It's all in this context of like strategic meaninglessness. And that's kind of the kiss of death for this game. And it's just a huge This is probably the weakest Total War game I've seen since like Rome 2 at launch. And from the standpoint of like an actual strategy game design, uh it's way, way thinner than Rome 2. Like I'm not sure there's ever been uh a total a Total War game this sort of underbaked. Uh, like as a strategy game. What do you I mean, think putting, happened with this? Because they're putting out a lot of these, like you know, relative to where they began, which makes sense because now it's like a big brand that like operates under a lot of different umbrellas. But like, do you do, do you think part of underpinning sort of the, the the weakness here is just like spreading themselves too thin? Like deciding by making by by giving it an official stamp as a spinoff. Like in some ways, like I wonder if in the past it was like, oh, the reason we're doing this is because we just have too many ideas and like let's shove it onto this other thing. And now it's like, oh. Now this is going to be something we're putting out every quarter because we, you know, have to hit X amount of releases. Yeah, I think that's a that goes, I think, some of the way to answering Danielle's question of like, if you look at the the blog they posted when they announced uh, Total War Sagas, there's this weird undercurrent of like self-conscious branding exercise elements to the entire thing where they're like, well, we're making a bunch of Total War games now, and we don't want people to get confused about what's what. So there's going to be Total War games, 
And then there's going to be sagas, which will just, they'll still be Total War games. They'll still have all the rich, deep gameplay you love, but they just won't be real Total War games. Uh, and the entire blog post has that tone. And I kind of do wonder if that reflects an underlying reality of, you know, it used to be, it, it always felt like there were two teams working in parallel. There was a team working on the big, like, technologically, like, the one, the, sort of the big the, the big tentpole release that was going to move the series forward mm-hmm. uh, from, like, a technical and a scale standpoint. And then there was sort of a B team that was going to be developing uh, a new iteration on whatever the, you know, current standard of the Total War engine was going to be, right? So it was like, so there was sort of a breakthrough team and then sort of a, uh, you know, follow-along uh, iter- iterative team. And now it feels like there might be so much happening that maybe there just isn't the same level of care and attention to detail going into these games. Like this one really does feel like there was not, it, it, it feels like for whatever reason, there was not enough time put into the development of the strategic layer. It, it, this feels like somehow a rough outline for how you would tweak the formula for this era. It feels like that just, somehow got through and became the final version of the game without ever having really been developed or fleshed out. I mean, I wonder, you know, it remains fascinating to me that Sega like owns this brand and <laughs> has continued to, to fund it. Cause people don't think of Sega as a, as a PC sort of uh, company. And yet, you know, by acquiring creative assembly and uh, really getting behind, you know, total war, uh, like they've become like one of the more prominent, you know, like underwriters of like the like forward facing strategy genre. Like if you're like, you know, think of like the major sort of tent poles, like Total War is definitely there. And it's weird that Sega's logo is is there as well. Um, and I, I don't know. I think I think it's I, I wonder how much of this is built under like, well, Sega decided to get really behind like strategy games as a thing. And then just as you start expanding those tent poles and like turning it into like its own like larger umbrella, like certain things are going to creak along the way as they figure that out. I mean, granted, it's been a while as they've started this expansion, but um, by sort of like formalizing it, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it remains fascinating to me that I, you see Sega's logo stamped to it. It's a little concerning. Cause like, so Sega, uh, I mean, they are huge in strategy now. Like if you're not like, you should be thinking of them as a strategy publisher at this point, because that has been where most of their emphasis has gone. Like, uh, Creative Assembly is now basically their shop, and they publish uh, the Total War series. Uh, I think they're also behind the Football Manager series yeah. as well, right? Uh, which is a huge franchise. It flies a little bit below the radar here. but well, it's, it's, it's big in Europe, and it's not big here, so people just forget that it exists. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Relic uh, was publishing a lot through, through Sega as well. Right. Um, but they sort of hit the skids with Dawn of War 3, uh, which I think you know, went really, really badly. It was kind of the vibe I'm getting around that one is it was kind of the uh, lawbreakers of RTS mm, uh, in some ways. So mm. they canceled development for that. Like they're done with Dawn of War three uh, less than a year after it came out. And now relic for whatever reason is uh work on age empires four from Microsoft without severing their relationship with Sega. It's this like contracting out thing. Uh, but like their future as a strategy game developer is not ex- like, it's not very clear. Uh, right now under Sega, like what, what the future holds for them, uh, which is a little bit worrying. And now you see Thrones of Britannia come along and there's already been a pivot to a lot of 
uh, DLC and small expansions in the Total War series under Warhammer. Um, and so there's... If you're the sort of person to start like getting worried about the moment where capitalism begins to strip mine a property of value, mm-hmm. um, I look at Thrones of Britannia and I'm like, uh-oh, I hope this isn't where they've sort of started to poison uh, the series. I, I think not like bad releases happen. I don't want to read too much into this one. And to- the total war series has been on a pretty sound footing of late, but like this one is a very weak entry in ways that concern me, especially for, it'd be one thing if it was like, Oh, this is the third entry in the formalized saga series. But like, no, this is the, this is the, the, the foot we're going to put forward now that we're turning in this to an official thing that you can start thinking about and conceptualizing and we're branding it like that. That is probably, you know, potentially the worrisome thing. It's like, this is what we thought was how we should start this pivot is, is with a, a game that, you know, uh, appears to be a lot weaker than, than it could have been if it was given a little more time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's a good segue into rage, but I guess you could feel rage over that. You could feel like a real burning it's anger. What associ- it's what we associate with Rob. Speaking constantly. of franchise explo- franchises know? exploding on the launch pad. <laughs> there you go. We got That's there. Right. Whatever. Rage had a great shotgun. Come on. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I shouldn't. I didn't. Like, I think I installed Rage and, like, played the opening, and that was it. So, like, I'm actually, like, I'm talking shit about Rage, but it's not coming from a place of, like, being informed about it. Uh, (laughs) So, like, you know, did that game get a bad, did that game get a bad rap? Like, was Rage secretly way more solid than... Uh, I don't, I think there's a case to be made that Rage was better than the reception it got, but I don't know that that it gets, like, a full like, revitalization of that. Like, I've read arguments for that. Like, there's a great piece that Kotaku, um, written by, uh, uh, oh, I forget the author. He's done a bunch of them for, for Kotaku. Um, and he, George Kotaku, Rage was actually good. And you'll get this piece that makes, um, a pretty, uh, 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 pretty articulate argument for the parts of it, uh, that are, uh, good. Um, and one, I will defend the shotgun to my dying breath. It is a tremendous shotgun. Like, the, the, like, uh, quintessential software. Yes, Doc Bufford. Yes, yeah, yeah. He, and he's done a bunch of great pieces like that for Kotaku and other right. other outlets. Um, and yeah, that's a great piece, and you should go check it out if you want to hear the argument for for why that game um, is interesting. Um, but you know, it was a bad. You know, I think it was it was pitched as like you know, id software making an open world game, and they had never done that before, and that was like very evident in um, that game. And it had like a, some really tremendous combat, which is you know, no great shock given the the legacy of that studio. Even if a lot of the you know, original creatives have left. Um, they've, you know, continued to kind of keep that in their DNA. Um, and yeah, so anyway, like that, that game ends with, I can't remember what the ending is, but it's kind of a, a wet fart of an ending where <laughs> it, sets, it sets up like some big twist for the future. And like, it was clear, like almost immediately after that game came out that like, you're probably not going to make a sequel to Rage. Um, and yeah, I mean, from the reporting that I've heard, like, you know, id Software was working on uh, a Rage 2, and then they were told to kind of save the, like, flummoxed Doom project, which, you know, obviously that turned out to be, like, a tremendous. Um, and, yeah, so, like, the last uh, couple of weeks, there have been some indications that Rage 2 is a thing. There was a uh, leak in Walmart Canada uh, where a bunch of retail listings uh, just randomly started publishing games that sounded plausible and both implausible. And <laughs> the ones that were making people, you know, there's like a Borderlands 3, which, you know, Gearbox has said they're making a, a Borderlands game. So 
you know, no great uh, shock there, but there was an Assassin's Creed game listed. So it was like, oh, all of these seem plausible as games that maybe are about to be announced at E3 or whereabouts. Uh, but then he threw in a game like Rage 2 and it was like, like, why would you make another, like, no, like no one, no one was, I mean, someone. Doc There's Budford a number one Rage fan out there wearing a there Rage was, T-shirt. Yeah, Doc was out. Doc was is out there asking for for Rage Two, <laughs> but there there was not the constituency for Rage Two was not uh, particularly uh, large or vocal. Um, and so the fact that it was there kind of made people think like, oh, actually, maybe this list is you know bullshit, and someone was just like having some fun and, and putting some stuff in the database. But uh, you know, this this morning we got a teaser trailer uh and tomorrow we're gonna get a gameplay trailer for rage 2 which is uh uh apparently being de- developed in connect uh sort of conjunction with avalanche studios uh we don't know the exact details of what that means but that's the studio behind just cause and uh mad max uh avalanche has multiple studios in new york and a swedish studio so and this is very kind of a case of like the b team and the a team so it's like we're not quite sure who how what Ava- avalanche's involvement is or which studio is getting involved i guess if we can say that, like the if this corroborates the Walmart leak, then Just Cause Four is probably also getting announced at uh, E3, and there might be a world where you could like start to extrapolate that. Well, the team that did Three was the New York studio, and the team that did Mad Max was the Swedish studio. So probably this the studio doing Four is the New York studio, and the Swedish studio is probably the one working on uh, Rage Two. If that's the case, like I did not play a lot of. Mad Max, we're going to, because we're going to do that for our next Waypoint uh, 101, but uh, that game has its defenders and was, like, a pretty interesting game from the people that spent time with it. Like, the people that have played it, I've really seemed to like it, Um, and the game they worked on previously was Just Cause 2, which is a phenomenal game, like, really, really fun, and so the idea of them applying that sort of expertise in open world and shenanigans, honestly, it's like, I can't think of a better word for Just Cause, (laughs) like, suddenly makes me interested in Rage 2 in a way that I would not have shown an interest before. And I continue to be sort of like uh, generally fascinated by Bethesda's approach to like their brands, which is to say they don't give up on them, even the ones that people would Pray argue. Pray to you, baby. Yep. It's going to happen. <laughs> or, or if it did, but here's the thing. If it did happen, like, would you be shocked if it was a completely different game that was not systems driven? It was had nothing to do with like the game they made before other than like the veneer of what pray, right. That's what I find fascinating about Bethesda as a company is like most studios at this point that were like just dragging up old IP. It's like, we're doing another one of those. You would roll your eyes, but like really at this point, Bethesda has deserves the benefit of the doubt. Like they brought doom back and it was great. They brought Wolfenstein back. It was great. Uh, I they guess brought Quake, Prey back, and it brought, was the yeah, best, yeah. best game of 2017. Yeah, yes, Prey was course. also great. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Quake, I don't, I didn't play it. It didn't really take off as an esports. So maybe Quake is, you know, maybe one ding against it. But like, you know, three out of four ain't bad. And they've basically made the case that they they value their IP enough to kind of use that as a reason to like experiment and do weird things when they bring them back and. I don't know. It makes it, it makes me more interested in a Rage Two than I ever would have been before because Bethesda has shown a track record where they they seem to find ways to make that work. Now, Zenimax is privately held, right? Yes. Hmm. Donald's this- brother is on the on oh, the board of yeah. a, uh, of directors, including Michael Bay, I believe, is also. That's on. a weird group of people. I think that's true. Maybe <laughs> I think I think that's true. I'm also, wrong on that. it's sort of a matter of public record that like Donald Trump hates his brother, right? 
Yeah, they don't have a great relationship, and I think there's a reason that his brother hasn't made many public statements about the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I just I, – I find it interesting that, like, Bethesda aren't giving up on these games. They continue to push sort of these properties that haven't had their uh, breakthrough moment, really. And I just wonder, like, does this entire – does that entire strategy hang by uh, – the thread of like, well, as long as this ownership group is intact and they're happy to continue, you know, taking, seeing these sorts of returns and taking these kinds of risks, then this is viable. Uh, Cause it sort of seems like just the direction of the industry as a whole, anywhere a company is publicly held uh, is to just start getting away from any games that like have this sort of risk and return profile and more into what we see like an EA uh, doing. Uh, and so like, this would sort of explain why a lot of my favorite games in the last few years have been Bethesda Zenimax uh, productions, but then also it makes me super nervous. Well, I guess the thing that probably is, you know, that, that you know, I can't speak to their internal uh, uh, discussions, but at the end of the day, you can always point to, well, Todd Howard's got this coming up, so yeah. we're fine. And like they, that kind of, I mean, it, I mean, both cynically and realistically like that, is an interesting part of their business model that we don't know how they think of it, but from the outside, it's, you know, you can look at it and go, well, let's just keep taking... I mean, this is honestly what this is what Take-Two has done. Like, Take-Two has taken an extraordinarily long time to get where they are, but for a long time, if you listen to their financial calls, they took a uh, a bath every quarter that they weren't releasing a Rockstar game, and every single question from every investor was, hey, what's up with the next Rockstar game? Hey, what's up with the next Rockstar game? Can we expect a Rockstar game next quarter? And their their pitch was always like basically like it's coming. We give them their time. It always pays off. It always gives a return that is like well worth the investment of kind of just letting them do their own expensive thing. Um, and then along the way, they were doing these big swings, right? Like Bioshock, Borderlands. Like it's easy to forget that like for a while, Take-Two was just the Rockstar company that they just happened to own Rockstar and everything else was just kind of floundering. Now you look at Take-Two and like they're a really stable company that's doing a lot of interesting things year after year that is surrounding Rockstar. But Rockstar has just become sort of a foundation and then they've built these big things over it. And yeah. that's what Bethesda has been trying to do and uh, in a lot of ways failing because if you, if you do failing from the metric of, uh, you know, was Prey a, a massive blockbuster success that like is going to guarantee a sequel and was a profitable game. Like, no, like not also not the case for Dishonored, but because they always have that kind of waiting in their back pocket, uh, they're able to keep taking these swings. But the also thing that makes them mysterious is because they're privately held. We don't get those Q&As with investors that, like, would inevitably be, hey, where's Todd Howard's game? When is Todd Howard's game coming next? You know, or, you know, when's the next Bethesda Game Studios, like, primary release? Um, and so, like, yeah, they're, they're an interesting company because we don't get a sense of what the rhetoric or, like, the push and pull on that stuff is. Because it seems like it's the same dynamic. Like, I, I really doubt that, uh, or it doesn't seem to be that, like, people are breathing down Todd Howard's neck saying... You know, you got to push to coming out next quarter in a way that's different than, you know, Bioware's relationship with EA um, and, you know, Anthem and Mass Effect. And it's just, yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird in a, in a way that I find really fascinating. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Uh, speaking of weird and fascinating, we've got some good questions this week. Uh, we got a couple, unless we want to talk about any other games that folks have been playing. Anything else that's uh, tickling your fancy at the moment? All, all my games are under NDA, uh, oh, that's unfortunately. Right. Yes, yes. I've been playing God of War and Donkey Kong, and I feel like we've probably talked a lot about both of those. So let's go into our question bucket. Of course, if you have questions, you can send them to gaming at vice.com with the subject question. We always appreciate your your interesting discussion. So we have a question in here from, let me make sure we get the user here, Evan. Evan writes, hi all. The Bloodborne stream the other day began with talk between Natalie and Austin on the tension between work and play. I'm wondering if any of you have experience with the Zactronic games like Space Chem and Infinifactory. They're games that are deeply preoccupied with labor, both thematically and mechanically, where much of the pleasure of the games comes from learning relatively simple math, programming, and engineering skills to complete tasks that revolve around industrial production. It's easy to imagine a near future where factory automation produces jobs and requires labor, or sorry, or requires labor, that isn't dissimilar to what you do in these games for fun. I'm wondering if you have played these games and if you have further thoughts about the role of play slash labor slash games and automation intersecting in these modes. Love all that good waypoint content, Evan. Uh, I've played a little bit of Space Chem and really love it, actually. I, I love puzzle games. I just really like a good, meaty puzzle game, whether I'm good at it or not, whether it takes me a million years to uh, actually figure things out or not. Uh, and it's it's sort of like a calming labor. That's how I sort of think of a lot of puzzle games. It's like a very calming, uh, chill place to put my brain so I'm not anxious about things. It's like the use of them in my life, which... I suppose does say something about me in that case. Like, oh yes, working on a on a really fiddly and and sort of complicated thing. Uh, sure, that, that <laughs> there's a way of babysitting your brain, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I haven't played Infinifactory. I kind of want to. I'm curious. Do you either of you have uh, experience with those games and sort of thoughts on that? Uh, so my produ- our producer on Three Moves Ahead, uh, Michael Hermes is really into these games uh and he's tried to sell me on them a, a couple different times i think like they scratch a very particular itch uh for a particular type of gamer right like people who really love uh mastering intricate interdependent connected systems really adore these games uh but parsing all of that and seeing how it all fits together is really incredibly daunting for someone (laughs) like me. And so it's like, to me, I look at these things and I'm like, that looks like basically I'd I'd be taking a class for a week (laughs) or so before I'm really playing it competently. And I tend to bounce off of it. Now I did show, I did show this game that they made, um, Shenzhen IO, uh, which is a circuit building game. A circuit design and engineering game. Uh, I showed that to my partner, and uh, I was like, "This seems like it's it's up your alley." And she was like, "Oh hell no, because uh, that's my job." 
Like, I'm not, like, no, that doesn't look fun at all. But then she sort of looks at it and she's like, but actually it could be. Because oh, it's sort of designed, because the way she put it, the game is sort of designed to, it is a bit like the job, but it's the job on your best day in mm-hmm. some ways. Like, mm-hmm. what if somebody made a game where you're not actually writing, but you're going through the motions of writing and what you're producing is just really good and really solid and two spec and two deadline and it's performing really well. And all of that happens and you're just doing an activity that is close to writing, but isn't exactly writing. And that I can actually sort of see being really appealing because it's like it's a job simulator of your job at your best. Right. It's the intellectual challenge of your work without the stakes and the worry. Uh, and I could see that being really satisfying uh, in some weird ways. You know, yeah. the, the absolute, like, the grind that gets in the way of the actual pleasure of the writing or, or video editing or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing day to day. Like, the bullshit, like the, oh, this this crappy thing happened or this got in the way or this got in the way and then this got in the way. It's like just this flow state of beautiful work that is just sort of like putting you in that zen state and you're happy to be there. I can uh, yeah. I think that's it's like, it's like, like the equivalent space, of, uh, um, like, I play golf, I like playing golf a lot, but I'm, like, endlessly mediocre at it. But then every <laughs> once in a while, like, you have that, like, beautiful swing where you put it all together, and it's like, ah, that's a world that it would look like if I knew how to do this on a regular basis. But it's a similar thing to what you're talking about there, where, like, w- what we do for a living, or anyone's living, right, like anyone's job, like, whether it's, you know, games criticism and video editing or, or, or writing or being a physicist, is like... The, the the thing that attracts you to it or the thing that you find satisfying about it, like you probably get to do pretty infrequently or if you to get into a mm-hmm. mode where you're both doing it well and getting to, like those just moments, they come or, they come around every once in a while and then they remind you why you do it in the same way that a good golf swing like reminds you why you, you struggle through like the eight times that you slice on your way uh, to, 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 to getting a nine at the end of a hole. But uh, so the idea of like having an experience or a game that lets you just drive and drill into that specific feeling um, without any of the surrounding stuff, like I, I could definitely see why that would be satisfying. I have not played those games. I am fascinated by like the gifts that get like like shared around of them because it looks like the way everything interlocks and fits Opus together. Opus Magnum is real good for that. It's very <laughs> gifable. Right, and I and I've seen those been like oh. Like, not for me, but, like, it's one of the things you look at and go, I get who this, like, I get why this could be for someone. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, when you when you lived in Boston, did you ever make it to the, uh, what was it, the, the MIT Museum in Cambridge? Uh, I don't think I actually ever went to the museum. I definitely sort of uh, peeked into some of the MIT lab areas from, you know, friends who, who kind of worked there. So I never actually made it to the museum proper, though, sadly. It's, I mean, it's a small museum. It's cute, but they have this really gorgeous collection of uh, kinetic sculpture. Oh, and yeah. so, I mean, it, it's basically like kinetic sculpture is basically like, you know, those little perpetual motion machines that people put on their desks and, and, and shit like that. And, you know, it's it, a lot of what you see day to day is kind of like, you know, tacky time wasting stuff. But like in this museum, there are these really uh, gorgeous, they're, they're, they're too elegant to be Rube Goldbergian, but they're similarly. Uh, in intricate and involved, and yet you can sort of parse their function and, and workings, and they're designed to just sort of, um, you know, function and perform mechanical action uh, ceaselessly to to no end other than motion. Uh, and so they're they're all kind of hypnotic 
uh, and you, you can't help but stare at them. Uh, and Opus Magnum and and like other Zectronics games seem to sort of scratch that itch, right? Where like I think a lot of people like I I, I think what sort of separates Zectronics to some extent is they make stuff that could be very hard to parse and very kind of bloodless and intellectual, uh, somehow deeply satisfying, uh, to watch in motion that there's, there, there, there is some, there's some aesthetic quality to the way these games move, uh, that, that gives you an idea of the pleasure of watching, uh, of completing these tasks, uh, which I find really cool. God, that sounds amazing. I I do love that sort of stuff. I my nascent understanding of uh of sort of art history and and sculpture and the, the types of art that I didn't actually study uh, in college and grad school is always God. I always have that feeling of man. I I want to understand this. I want to put my hands on it and I want to understand it because it's incredible and amazing. Um, awesome. And also now, of course, I need to play Space Cam some more. <laughs> Uh, we have another letter, probably one more, I guess, because uh, the, the one after that is like 10 paragraphs long, and we're, we're, we're almost at 50 minutes, so let's go with this one. Uh, this one comes from Jeremy. Jeremy writes, Battletech taught me that the they-them pronoun option in Battletech, oh, sorry, the subject line is Battletech taught me. The letter is, the they-them pronoun option in Battletech, along with your coverage of the game, finally pushed me to consider my dismissive attitude towards people who prefer to use neutral pronouns. It's not like I was a Jordan Peterson head before this or had any ill will towards uh, non-conforming folks, but I certainly dismissed their complaints in a way that I now realize is intolerant, reactionary, and completely unhealthy. I was really pleasantly surprised that such a small aspect of this game pushed me to work through this stuff. I wanted to ask if a game had ever made you aware of something ugly in yourself, or had a positive impact on an internal struggle that you had. Thanks, Jeremy. Hmm. One, that's really good. Yes. I want to say like, <laughs> yeah. like like having like personal like introspection on stuff like that and like recognizing like the your faults and like the ways you can grow and like learning to like just be more understanding and, and thoughtful is like that's that's cool. Like we should recognize like, you know, often the yeah. internet is used to uh, rightfully dunk on people that uh, refuse to do that kind of work, um, and and we should definitely celebrate when people do do that work and are and, and importantly are willing to admit like ah like I had the shitty opinion and uh, or said the shitty thing and like here's what I learned and here's where I'm going like that doesn't get you the retweets uh, in the same way that the other <laughs> stuff does but yeah. uh, we should definitely be good about um, like congratulating people you know uh, you know maybe not congratulating but like encouraging people to do the same sorts of uh, things and, and kind of have the same sort of self-examination. Well, it's it's worthy of some congratulation because a lot of people do, when confronted with that request for empathy and understanding, go the opposite direction yeah. and are like, sure. hey, yeah. fuck you. How dare you make me feel awkward for my beliefs? <laughs> and then they then they tell the story of their, their red pilling. Yep. Exactly. So, you know, the, Good the job, two ways, Jeremy. I am, I am thrilled to see people go the right direction at that, at that, at that juncture. You're right. The bar, the bar is exceptionally low. So, like, we should be happy with Battle people. Battletech showed me Jordan Peterson is a modern luminary. No! Yeah. Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of a game that, that I had an, an experience that was some, that was anything akin to that i I I can speak like as a broad thing it's not like a game itself but sort of being in gaming culture uh 
was the thing that made me aware of ableist language and like trying to, you know, attempt to use less ableist language. That is definitely something that has come from being like in, I guess, sort of progressive gaming community spaces. Like it wasn't one specific game, but it was definitely like, oh, this is something I should try to be less shitty about, <laughs> you know, like that's something I should keep in mind and and think about and be aware of and not make people feel crappy. Uh, and especially yeah. with uh, neurodivergence, uh, just not not something I, you know, I'm not saying I like ran around saying slurs, but I didn't necessarily consider that or think about that until I actually, you know, met a lot of folks in the gaming space who, who uh, you know, are neurodivergent folks and like kind of taught me like, hey, watch out with what you say, because it actually like really hurts people. And like that's there's a lot of meaning there. There's a lot to actually be aware of in that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm in a similar boat where uh like the gaming community uh is is where I have done a lot of like personal introspection, like learned from mistakes, been like and you know uh uh been taught about you know not just new ways of thinking, but you know reexamining like you know whether it's like phrasings of things or or or, or stories to look into or communities to examine. Like a lot of my own personal growth um has come from being involved in uh gaming communities and people having the patience and understanding to sort of like help me out as I, as I work through that stuff and, and learn different things. And so like as, as crummy as a lot of like, you know, quote unquote video game culture is like, I'm also deeply thankful for uh, different aspects and different corners of it because it's, it's helped me do the exact same thing. Like my entire conceptualizing of, uh, you know, feminism, sexism, like all that stuff that like a lot of people like go through their, like twenties, like learning and and like just becoming a more empathetic person, like that has happened in the context of like understanding it uh, through uh, video games and video game culture. And so, like I'm, I you know, as opposed to having like, an individual moment in a game, like it's more been like a continual sort of like expansion and like personal narrative that has happened like through video games and video game culture that that I'm deeply thankful for. Yeah. Um. So I think for me, there's a couple things. Uh, I remember. Back around the time that it was announced or revealed that you were going to have the option to make Shepard in Mass Effect gay. Um, and I think, was that... Because, f- like, you could well, always... You like, Liara was always Shepard, was always, uh, like, bisexual and oriented to Shepard. Like, I, like yes. canonically, <laughs> she's supposed to be your wife at the end of Mass Effect, I, I, I suspect. Uh, but... Beyond that, I don't think you could. There were there were same sex couplings available to Shepard. Were there prior to? So three was the first one you could be a dude and date another dude. Uh, right. I believe so. In two, you could go on a date as a lady Shepard. You could go on a date with your like assistant, your ship's assistant lady. Right. Uh, but it was pretty like surface level, uh, for sure. So, um, because I remember at the time being resistant to that more because it felt to me like at the time I interpreted it as like a bit of like hollow feeling inclusivity. Uh, because I was like, we're three games into this. This is a pretty significant retcon for a character that this hasn't been part of their identity. And that would sort of seem to be running counter to who Shepard is and has been. Um, and I think it was sort of, up my own ass about that a little bit. <laughs> and then I started to see that 
both the reaction to it, but then also the way it was executed. Uh, and by the way, I hear that uh, Caden has a fascinating arc uh, in light of uh, how that evolves over the course of the series. Uh, but I think what it was a game that made me realize that I tended to think that fiction that includes marginalized people should somehow speak to their daily experience like here in our reality and it started to make me realize that like oh wait there's actually a really good case to be made for not having all the shitty things about our modern context reflected in every piece of fucking fiction you can you consume uh and imagine how exhausting it would be to see yourself constantly portrayed as uh somehow other or somehow victimized or oppressed like i started to see the value in fiction that is not even necessarily empowering but more liberating from that context yeah uh and i'd always been really dismissive of that uh but like mass effect kind of snapped me out of that and is like no not every like not every gay character in a game has to have a gay story by the standards of like 1990s American pop culture, right. uh, for instance, right? Where it's like, well, I think we all learned something uh, in the space adventure. The coming out story slash bullying story. Right. Probably. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or or in the case of a lot of like queer uh, narratives about women, somebody dies. Almost mm-hmm. always. Like, especially in like 90s and 80s and, and prior to that, somebody dies, somebody commits suicide. Uh, sorry, content warning for all of that shit. But like, that was such a trope. But like, yeah. Yeah, like such a prevalent trope. Yeah, I um, that's really cool. Uh, we talked uh, a little bit last week about Mass Effect and why I loved it because it was gay. So like, you know, my heart is warmed by the fact that that Mass Effect was special in that way for you too, Rob. I mean, not in the same way, but you know what I mean. Ah, <laughs> oh, amazing. I think we've all learned something here today. Uh, <laughs> I guess. I guess we all have. I mean, we learned a lot about Patrick. Uh, We've learned a lot about Patrick. We've learned a lot about coffee. You're welcome. You know, yes. Thank you. Thank you for being a friend. Thank you, everyone, uh, for for being a friend, for being here. It's weird all Patrick's lessons about empathy haven't translated to the breakfast table. Oh, boy. See? That's your next lesson, Patrick. You can... Maybe you you need to have... Maybe you need to learn some empathy for me, Rob, and what I'm going through. Oh, I don't know. I, I think we just started. Uh, you haven't tasted. You haven't tasted that coffee, Rob. <laughs> I think. I think I have. You know what I mean? Like you describe it, and I'm like, I think I know that coffee. I think. I, I think I know that brew. We've all tasted the bitter taste of, a, of oppression. Uh, oppression coffee. I feel like mm-hmm. a little bit. You know. Uh, so if you have questions, of course, uh, dear friends, you can send those to gamingatvice.com with the subject question. Shoutouts, as always, to Bowen for letting us use We gotta do our track. waypoints. Oh, waypoints. shit! I almost forgot about our waypoints. How could I? I'm sorry. I was so distracted by Mass Effect and coffee. Patrick, what's your waypoint this week? What's your waypoint? Uh, I'm gonna shout out because this got unexpectedly popular on Twitter last week. Uh, related to Rage 2, uh, I wrote a short post for an open thread on Waypoint um, about uh, if Rage 2 can exist. I was trying to go through a list of games that, like... If you just attached a two to it and announced a sequel, people would do the like the same sort of head fake as Rage, where it's like, what? So it was like not obvious stuff. Like I was going through my list of games I want sequels for, and it's like Bully Two, like has been rumored forever. So it's like it 
it would be surprising, but not in the same sort of like, why would they do that? You would go Bully 2 and go, oh, because people really liked that game. Um, and so the one that I kind of landed on was a sequel to Prince of Persia from 2008, mm, which was a yeah. uh, had this really incredible uh, look. Uh, uh, they used cell shaded as shorthand, but, you know, it looked, you know, kind of like an animated cartoon. Um, it had this really interesting uh, mechanic where you couldn't, die and it wasn't that you couldn't die it's just that when you missed a jump or something like that it just rewound you back to the previous thing you were doing so all it was doing was just skipping the game over screen and just bringing you back to where you were uh and it caused a lot of weird controversy at the time uh, i haven't gone back to that game so I, i'm sure my feelings about it would be a little bit different it was a instance where ubisoft sold the real ending as paid dlc bad bad yeah. bad um but it was one of those it was one of those games that uh, I I so deeply wanted to see a sequel to. There was something about it that really resonated with me, um, and there was just a lot of really creative ideas. And it's uh, I, so I'm going to champion going back and checking out a game that I can't 100% vouch for, uh, Prince of Persia 2008, which I believe uh, you can also get on Steam. It was it has not gotten any sort of remaster, um, unfortunately, um, but uh, you can get the the uh, version of it on PC. Where apparently <laughs> I looked, they didn't even release the DLC for. What? So the paid the 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 real ending that you had to pay for apparently is not even available on the PC version, which also bad. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna champion I'm gonna champion the the Prince of Persia 2008. Uh, a game I desperately wish uh, got a sequel, but will never happen. But maybe if I scream loud enough, it'll get some sort of backwards compatibility at some point so people can check it out. Oh, I want to play that again, for sure. My God. Uh, Rob, what about you? What's what's a good waypoint for you this week? Uh, I think given the events of last week... Uh... <laughs> Watch The Expanse, people. God damn it. Oh, like, go on yeah. Amazon. Like, the, the first two seasons are free on Prime. Start ordering up that third season. Uh, I haven't started it, actually, because uh, I was getting, I've been backlogged with... Well, I've been watching a lot of playoff uh, basketball and hockey, but uh, I've, I'm, I'm ready to start season three of The Expanse. I just finished my rewatch of season two. The Expanse oh. is a great goddamn show. Uh, and it's gotten, again, like, it's one of those things that has gotten, like, more resonant with time. Uh, it creates a really interesting political landscape uh, for its universe and different competing interests and the tensions that exist within movements uh, and political bodies, organizations uh, in that universe. And it's all done via this really genuinely exciting, thrilling and gorgeous uh, sci-fi drama. Um it's got this incredible cast, but I think watching the second season of The Expanse really started to drive home uh, how much my view of the character's politics has changed in the last couple of years, uh, particularly. And again, I haven't gotten into the third season. I haven't read the books, but um, there is this character, uh, Dawes, that is sort of this extremist leader of the um, sort of the laboring classes of... Uh, of this universe, uh, the Belters, the people who live in mining colonies uh, out in the asteroid belt and beyond. And they've historically sort of been taken advantage of by uh, sort of militaristic uh, Mars and uh, uber-capitalist wealthy Earth. Yeah, Earth, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so this, this character Dawes, there's this great showdown about midway through the season between 
the factions of Belter leadership. Uh, and there's this character, Fred Johnson, who is sort of representing the, the moderate wing of the movement, who's like the time has come to reach a good, equ- equitable settlement uh, with Mars and Earth, and that should be our strategy. We've got, we, we hold all the cards right now. We should take advantage of this moment to make them treat us fairly. Uh, and this character Dawes comes along and he gives this great speech about the different values that the various factions have and why any agreement with people like the militarists of Mars and the incredibly acquisitive, greedy, uh, you know, leadership on earth, why any agreement with them is going to be sort of self-defeating and dangerous over the long haul. And therefore the, the real, the real play here is to sort of grab them by the throat and squeeze whatever concessions you can out of them, like press really hard, no compromise. And when that scene first aired, I was like, oh, clearly, like, Dawes is a snake in the grass, right? Like, this guy, what a scumbag. Like, he's coming along, getting all these people riled up and creating, like, a really crisis of leadership uh, within this movement uh, just at the moment that a fair deal uh, could be on the table. And watching it now, I'm like, "Eh, Dawes might actually have the clearest vision of the state of play in this universe. Like, he might might be right. Uh, And... It's interesting to me that, like, the series politics bears that sort of scrutiny, right? Like, a lot of sci-fi can date... You can sort of date itself by, like, what its clear politics are. I think The Expanse is really cool because, like, at the end of a lot of these debates and a lot of the things these characters have to go through, I'm left with a lot of empathy for every single player on the board. Um, Like, it unfolds tragically because everybody is making a lot of, like relatable decisions for reasons that make sense. Uh, And your view on them will change a lot depending on where you stand and what you're concerned about at that point in your life. So it's really, really cool. Uh, It was canceled by sci-fi. I don't know if that means the series is canceled Uh, right now. Things look very iffy, Uh, but either way you should, you should dig into it because those first two seasons are tremendous. God, they are. I reading the books now I have been, in awe of how good the show is, actually. I love the books as well, but the show is a really concise and improved version, I think, of a lot of the things that happen in the books. And holy crap, it is... Especially James Holden is a lot better in the show uh, than he is in the books. Uh, But yeah, co-signed that one uh, times a thousand. Please, somebody, Netflix, I don't care, somebody pick up The Expanse and make the rest of it. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Uh, I'm reading the Deadline article. Apparently, uh, it's written by... Uh, the writers behind Children of Men, uh, which explains a lot. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, My waypoint this week is really fucking goofy. Uh, I went to Eurovision. I went to a Eurovision party this weekend, and I went really late. I actually missed Eurovision. But my friends and I put on 1999's best movie about a mummy, uh, The Mummy, uh, and we sure watched Brendan Fraser in his greatest glory in his Brendan Fraserist, uh, in like, well, that's not blast the... in the past. Oh yeah, that movie is kind of great uh, in that it knows it's a piece of fucking trash, but it has a lot also, of fun. Also, Brendan anyway. Fraser, kind of great. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. He was hot and earnest and like adorable in a lot of the right ways. In the ways that I remember, my local critic in the Providence, Rhode Island, the. Uh, <laughs> 
the the newspaper, the local newspaper, called him a bargain basement Indiana Jones. And I will never forget that. I will never forget that he called, uh, you know, his character Rick McConnell in this movie, bargain basement Indiana Jones, which actually kind of gets at the character quite well, but it's missing a lot of the charm and the, like, happy, goofy smile uh, of, of the character. The movie itself is, like, a really weird mishmash of horror and, like, slapstick comedy and screwball comedy, which I did not realize, huh. you know, since watching it, you know, for the first time as, like, Screwball? Yeah, there's a lot of screwball in this w- between Rick and what's-her-face? Uh, uh, Rachel Weiss's character, uh, who is, like, adorable. They have these, like long take scene like single shot scenes that go on for minutes and minutes where they they're doing slapstick kind of screwball stuff where they're talking a about lot of, a lot of his a lot of his comedy was very physical it's yeah like he's, a big go- he's kind of a big goofy looking guy yeah and so that's not super shy there's a i can't remember people have to look it up but uh someone did a he's had like a rough go of it the oh last, it was like, a gq so. profile i think yeah there's this yeah. gq pro there's both uh famously some interview where he was at like con or something like that where someone asked him like how things are going, and it was just, just like, super sad he and upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was, like, very honest about what how, like, the directions his career has taken. And then, yeah, there's a GQ profile from uh, last year, I think, where um, they went out to, like, his ranch or farm and did this really fascinating profile of, like, you know, just where he's at and, and the kind of person. He sounds like he's much more at peace with uh, where he's at, and it was just, uh, you know, a lot of profiles don't really – tell you that much about a person but uh that one was particularly uh insightful and made you want to made you want to root for him and hope yeah. that you know things kind of kind of go his way uh, i mean certainly he seems like he's fine <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like he's not he's uh he's not slumming it necessarily but he's uh it, the, just the way hollywood kind of cycles people in and out um it's a sort of fascinating look yeah, at yeah. where he ended up and it's worth noting he was uh, harassed, I think, as well, like sexually harassed by a, yes. a, a male yeah. producer. So like he he's had a a shitty time. That this mm-hmm. dude, like I, he is definitely. I think he is like in a, some new projects. It sounded like there was some life to you know to to celebrate in his career. But also he's he's really really charming to watch, uh, especially you know kind of in the prime of the late nineties, uh, early two thousands when he was making a lot of movies. Not all of them were good. Or even decent, but he sure was a, a fun, fun dude to watch. And that I will, I will argue for Blast from the Past. I will say that is a good movie. Hell yeah! You know, I, wa- I watched so much Airheads as a yes. kid. Oh my! Like I was, obs- it was always on Comedy Central. Um, it's, it probably still is. It was like a mainstay of back when Comedy Central like was just like putting on all these comedies all day long yeah. um, that they were snatching up for syndication. But I watched it. I, I watched. I grew up basically with Brendan Fraser. Like I yeah. watched, yeah, Blast of the Past, Encino and, Man, Encino Man, and yeah. uh, Airheads. Like I genuinely loved uh, growing growing up. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I am he, I am here for Brendan Fraser. Yes. Let me tell you, one hundred percent. Also, the guy who plays Emotep, really hot. Not something I realized when I, you know, back when I was like fifteen and watching this movie for the first time. The like bad guy who you know is the mummy, really hot dude. Just gonna put it out there. You know, if you right. if you're in the mood for that. That's uh, it's there for you. <laughs> so yeah, the Mummy, pretty fun movie, pretty fun. Nineteen ninety nine. All right, I think those are all our waypoints uh, for today. Uh, of course, shout out to Bowen letting us use his track "Miss You" off of the EP "Pale Machine." We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice as well. And of course, you can read all of our 
wonderful articles at waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Patrick Lubbock. Amazing. Rob, how about you? At Rob Zachney. Awesome. I'm at Danielle R.I., and I'm here to tell you, be good and be good at it. So the thing is, you want the coffee at 205 <laughs> degrees because that, like, any any hotter, it gets, like, burnt. But any colder, it, it just no, no body on it. It's a very thin coffee, the kind that uh, Patrick's wife makes. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.